All right, good, well, good morning, everyone. That probably woke you up, all right? So uh, we're grateful to have you here on this uh, Memorial Day weekend. Trust that uh, what happens here today will be a blessing uh, to your heart. Uh, Vacation Bible School starts June 19 through 23. The primary need for that week is what we call the group guide. So we split the kids up into groups of six to eight, and each of those groups has a guide assigned. If you're in high school, you can serve in that capacity. If you're an adult, you can serve in that capacity. You don't really have any preparation to do, but it's just a great opportunity to come, hang out with, <clears throat> and serve other people within our church. So make sure you go to the sign-up area out back there's or out front there's a QR code that you can just kind of focus on with your phone and that'll get you to the volunteer site to sign up next Sunday morning we have a baptism service so we're uh, really looking forward to that I think we have uh, about eight people getting baptized so uh, we're gonna looking forward to a really beautiful time uh, next Sunday and then on June 11th we have the Hoving Home Choir coming to sing for us so Got a lot of kind of neat things to look forward to as we begin the summer. So I need to say quickly, where are my in-laws? Where are they? Okay, back there. Okay. So my mother-in-law just turned 94, and Cy turns 94 in a week. Okay? So congratulations to them. All right? I like to think that God has given them the privilege of long life so they can spend more time with me. I could be wrong, okay? I could be wrong. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is this. Uh, so we've been praying for Tommy Mazone. Tommy, you can stand up there with your wife, Victoria, real quick. So uh, Tommy finished law school uh, about a year ago now, right? A year ago, and then has now become a, uh, an officer in the United States Marine Corps. And... Uh, yeah, so thank you for uh, standing there. Appreciate having you guys here. Would you stand with me this morning as we uh, go into a season of prayer and then enter into our time of worship? Psalm 118.1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his love endures forever. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we come uh, before uh, we're very conscious of... Uh, of, of this weekend, uh, uh, we call this uh, Memorial Day weekend, and it's a time when we think about the sacrifices that were made for us to live in freedom. And uh, Lord, we don't, I don't look at freedom as something we deserve, but it's a gift that you've given to us through the sacrifice of others. And so Lord, we thank you for those that uh, paid the ultimate price so that we could come and worship you together in freedom this morning. We could sing your praises in freedom this morning. So Lord, be honored, be glorified as we praise you. We lift up our friends in our church family who are struggling and just repeatedly we pray for the healing of uh, Diana uh, Kelly. We pray for the healing of Linda Matthews. We pray for uh, healing for Tim Dorier's back. Uh, God, there's a number of issues I'm sure that are present here that I'm not mentioning. We've prayed for little baby Gino and was in this cast for such a long time and now is kind of been set free from that. We pray that you would just bring continued healing to his little body. Bless, bless uh, Rocco and Rachel as they seek to love and serve their son with all of the responsibilities that go with caring for a son who's gone through a season of struggle. We pray rich favor over them. 
Lord, thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the price you paid so that we could be free from our sin. Help us as we sing this morning to revel in that truth, to remember that truth, and may it comfort and encourage and strengthen our hearts together. Pray for these blessings in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's worship him together this morning.
Yeah, why this fear? Why this fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief His spotless Son for us? And will the righteous judge of men condemn before that debt of sin now canceled at the cross? Jesus. No wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by your saving grace and sprinkled with your blood.
Turm.
children now. You hear your children now. You are the same God. You are the same God. You answered prayers back then, and you will answer now. You are the same God. You are the same God. You were providing then. You are providing now. You are the same God. You are the same God. You moved in power then. God moved in power now. You are the same God. You are the same God. You Father in heaven, 
sovereign God of the universe. We thank you on this day of remembrance for all that you've done for us, for sending your son to die for us on the cross, that we may have freedom, true freedom, freedom from death, victory over sin, and life eternal with you in heaven. And we thank you, Lord, for sending your Holy Spirit that we may be convicted of our sins, but at the same time have peace knowing that you are the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you for these things, O Lord. And we ask today that we may have a spirit of boldness, have much energy, and think great thoughts, and have the assurance that we are abiding in you and living under the power of your name. And on this day of remembrance, Lord, we ask, as the thief on the cross asked, remember us, Lord, as you are in your kingdom now. And remember what you said to the thief on the cross. Today I say to you truly, you'll be with me in paradise. Lord, we need you. We need you desperately. O Rock of Ages, we remember all that you've done, and we ask that you remember us, that we know you, but more importantly, you know us. This day, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On this day of remembrance, I thought I'd read a short song of praise before I read the scripture here. Some of you may recognize it. It was written by Sir Cecil Spring Rice in 1918, just after or near the close of the First World War. It says, I vow to thee, my country, all earthly things above, entire and whole and perfect, the service of my love, the love that asks no questions, the love that stands the test, that lays upon the altar the dearest and the best, the love that never falters, the love that pays the price, the love that makes undaunted the final sacrifice. And there's another country I've heard of long ago, most dear to them that love her, most great to them that know. We may not count her armies, we may not see her king. Her fortress is a faithful heart, her pride is suffering. And soul by soul, and silently her shining bounds increase, and her ways are ways of gentleness, and all her paths are peace. If you turn now to 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, bring put, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which it corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of God. Amen. Children, you could be dismissed for junior church. And for the rest of you, keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 3. I was thinking, and probably as you heard as um, Steve was reading that passage, some of it sounded uh, kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, how are we supposed to deal with the sufferings that happen in this world? The, and we're supposed to do that with gentleness and kindness. It just doesn't seem like it makes sense. In fact, the world would probably look at that and say that we are pretty naive uh, to do that. I was thinking about this world, that this world that we live in is marked by relentless hostility, constant hostility and contentiousness. That is epidemic in our societies today. It, it surrounds the various forms. It's leaving a lasting impact in people's lives and in their communities. You know, you have this online harassment that occurs, cyberbullying, and you probably have heard of it. The rise of these social media platforms that, and these online platforms that give people the opportunity to engage in hostile behavior, and they do it in cloaked behind the safety of anonymity. And it's alarmingly prevalent, and people find themselves tearing other people down with hostile words and threats and personal attacks, and, and the consequences are devastating, and it leaves emotional distress, it leaves a wake of pain, it leaves isolation, it leaves self-harm. But it's not just the online and cyberbullying, uh, it's political divisiveness, and uh, let's be honest, we are living in a political season in a time where there is great hostility and contention that is happening constantly, and people are aligning themselves with a specific ideology, or they're aligning themselves with a specific political party, and what they have a tendency to do is to demonize the other group. And as they do that, the political discussions, whether it's online or offline, we find ourselves devolving into political attack, personal attacks, name calling, refusal to engage in conversations. There was a time in our country where we could debate one another and learn from one another and challenge one another, but we don't do that anymore. The hostile environment hampers any progress and it fosters division. It hinders pursuit. But it's not just the online harassment, it's not just political divisiveness, there's this cultural thing that is happening, this polarization that is happening in our society. People are so quick to judge one another, and they label one another, they label them by groups, and the hostility leads to some levels of discrimination, prejudice, we prejudge people, injustice, 
permeates our society, and it's, it's this inequality that tends to happen, and constructive conversations, once again, are gone by the wayside, and, and when we have important social issues, we can't seem to talk with one another, we fight with one another. And there's their verbal violence and physical violence. The hostility of our world escalates into verbal violence, physical violence. Disagreements turn heated. The confrontations that happen, this political display, the crimes, the terrorism, the display of aggression that happens in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, and around the world. The reality is, is that we live in a really hostile and contentious world. And the pain that we have, the suffering that comes from that is great. People hurt one another through their words, hurt one another through their actions. They hurt one another through their attitudes constantly. Our environment is just full of anger and frustration. And what I want you to know is this, as a believer, in the midst of the hostility that is around you, that God in his precious word has given you counsel as how to handle it, how you're supposed to live in light of the hostility, how you're supposed to handle the hostilities of this world. He has laid it out for us. He's characterized that in his word. I was thinking that if you think about the golden rule, the golden rule is, you remember what it says, right? In Matthew 7, what do we do? Treat others as what? We want to be treated. And I wonder, because that's God's solution. And you know what's crazy is this, that the world would actually say that that's good counsel. That non-believers would say, treat others the way you would want to be treated, but then they don't do it. And we as Christians oftentimes don't do it as well. And what would happen if this world were really a world where we generally followed that principle of treat others the way we would want to be treated? Selflessness and compassion would just be so apparent in our lives. It would abound in our lives. Conflicts would tend to cease in life. But unfortunately, our natural inclination is pride. Our natural inclination is selfishness. Our natural inclination is to reject and neglect others. And our natural inclination is to promote ourselves and protect ourselves. And Jesus said something else that was countercultural. He said in Matthew chapter 5, he said what? He said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That is so countercultural. I'm supposed to pray for the person that's persecuting me? Well, Jesus was radical in that. Paul was radical as well because he encourages you to bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. We need to hear this counsel. And by imitating Christ's humility and by imitating Christ's counsel, Paul's counsel, now Peter's counsel, that when we live with humility in the midst of this violent and hostile time, guess what? Life and relationships can be radically different. See, if we respond exactly the way the world responds, our, our worship, our witness means nothing. We could say we love Christ, but then if we speak like the world and act like the world, then we have no witness. What Peter is saying is this, I want you to know that you need to embrace the mind of God. You need to embrace the heart of God. The mind of God and the heart of God was revealed to us in the gospel. In the fact that the ultimately offended one, God, came here to earth to rescue you. In spite of the fact that you were his enemy, he came here to rescue you. And see now, if you can get that, it's radically different. If I can get the gospel, if you can get the gospel center in your life and in your heart, radically changes everything. 
But how do I deal with the suffering, James? How do I deal with the pain and the turmoil and the hostility and the threats and the violence? How do you deal with the physical turmoil that you go through? There's a point that Peter's getting to here is this. His whole goal in this book is to give you hope. He has started right from the beginning. He says, in this you what? Rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He started by saying he has raised you with a living hope. He is trying to give you hope that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He is giving you hope in the midst of the violent and tumultuous times of life. But when you lose focus of that great hope, the resurrection hope, everything just becomes fruitless. So Peter, Peter's not crazy here. Peter is not giving you ridiculous statements. Peter is not naive. In fact, Peter knows he's going to die. Jesus told him, you're going to die a violent death. Peter knows that his future is a cross. He knows it already. But he is able to walk to that cross because he keeps the resurrection hope of Christ alive in his life. That's what this whole passage is about. Now, as Steve read it for us, I appreciate him reading it. As you saw some things in there, you saw baptism, you saw that Jesus is preaching to some um, spirits, and there are so many people that have lost the hope that he's trying to give us in these verses through these debates and these controversies. I'm not going there. I'm really not. I'm going to kind of give you an impression of what I think he means here, but this is a very confusing passage. One, uh, one of my former pastors, one of our former pastors, um, Pastor Mel Dahl, he passed away years ago. He used to say, context is king. And so what we need to do is to keep the context. His context is this, hope in the midst of your trials. Don't get discouraged by everything else. Don't get distracted by everything else. See the hope of the gospel in the midst of this trial, and God can be glorified in you and through you. Can I pray as we start, before we start this passage? So Lord, I, I pray right now, as I look at this passage, it would be very easy for us to get distracted by theological debates. And to be honest, there are a couple of sections in here where I don't know what Peter was saying. <laughs> but I do know this. He knew you. He knew your son. He was filled by your spirit, and this is your word given to us. So help, help me to try to interpret it as well as I can. Help me to observe what's here. Help me to interpret what's here. Help me to apply what's here. Help us all to do that. Father, help us to live with hope in the midst of the violent and hostile times that we live in. Help us to reflect you and honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's get to the passage. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. It says this, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, once again, how can Peter actually say that you're going to be blessed? Because the fact of the matter is, is that there are so many people that are going to go through painful and challenging times in life. Suffering can break down the most challenging things in a person's life. It can break down your will. You may be going through physical pain right now. And as you're going through this physical pain, whether it's cancer or Crohn's or whatever it may be, that thing that is eating you alive and hurting you is, is causing pain. 
For some of you, you're going through relational rejection. For some of you, you're going through abuse. For some of you, you're going through grief. For some of you, you're going through loss. The suffering that we go through is painful. It's difficult. And it can oftentimes lead us to despair. What, what Peter is arguing here is this. It doesn't have to. But even if you should suffer, and you're suffering for righteousness' sake... So it's not just the physical suffering that we're going through. It's not just the relational suffering. It's not just grief. It's the fact that for some of us, those people that he was talking to, they were suffering because they were in Christ. They were suffering because of doing the right thing. Have you ever found yourself doing that? Maybe it's at your job and you know that this is the right thing to do and somebody is telling you you have to do something wrong and you say, no, I need to do the right thing. And you were suffering because of that. I'll be honest, uh, you know, we live in a country where it's kind of crazy at times, but I have no necessary fear that anybody in here is going to come and hurt me and harm me. Right now, I don't have fear that the police are going to come in and arrest me over preaching the gospel, but there are believers around this world that open the Bible and they're afraid. They preach in a pulpit and they could be killed. They could be imprisoned. And that is happening around this world. And there are people that are dying for their faith every single day around this world. And I'm afraid that it's coming to our country as well eventually. And so the question is, is that when we suffer, when we go through these, Peter is trying to give you this, that there's a living hope. He's trying to press that in. And he's trying to give you a reason for that hope. And he says that you will be blessed. Now, the blessing that he talks about here clearly cannot be that there isn't going to be suffering and trials. It can't be that because he's already told you, you are going to suffer. So when he talks about blessing here, when he talks about hope, he's talking about a future hope, a future blessing, that there's a ground of it today, but you're moving forward. So many of us want the healing right now. So many of us want the, the complete peace right now. Some of, so many of us want the freedom right now, but God is preparing us for an eternity with him. That this is a short vision of your life and it's preparing for you eternity. So he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. But then he says this, which is mind blowing. He says, have no fear of them. Have no fear of those that are attacking you. Have no fear of those that are against you. And how could he say that? Fear is interesting. Fear is about worship. It's about elevation. So that's why God can say in his word, I want you to fear me and don't fear others. He wants you to elevate him and worship him, not worshiping others. And so he's saying here, I don't want you to have fear of them. I don't want you to worship them. I want you to worship my son. And don't be troubled by them. See, what we receive in Christ is this, that in his perfection, he was rejected. In his perfection, he was betrayed. In his perfection, he was suffering. He suffered scorn. And what we have in him is that he received the rejection, but we receive his hope. Because we're in Christ and because we're united to his death, we don't have to fear anything. We don't have to fear ultimate reviling. We don't have to fear evil. We don't have to fear rejection because it is temporary on this side of heaven. And then it's lasting peace and harmony and hope for all of eternity. See, if I live 60, 70, 80, 90 years, and the pain in this world is for that entire time, it is a blip on the radar screen when you think of eternity. So he wants you to cast your vision of what you will have for all of eternity and say that this short time is nothing. 
This mistreatment that you're going through is nothing in comparison to eternity. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because I think that's what he's, he, Paul was getting at in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you remember this passage, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. I love when I hear those turning of the pages. But, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Jump down to verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outward nature may be wasting away, our inward self is being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That's beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are what? Transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. What Paul is arguing is exactly what Peter is arguing, is that if you take the temporary suffering that you're going through and compare it with the eternal weight of glory, there is no comparison. And so he's trying to give hope to people that are going through trials and troubles to say, you've got eternity that awaits you. So, verse 14, verse 15, he goes in and he says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Back to, I'm sorry, back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. There is so much here, I could probably preach a whole sermon on just this one passage. But I want to pull out six things I want you to consider just out of this one verse. One, he says it has to start in your heart. He says, I want you to honor Christ in your heart. It's not just your actions. It's the fact that in your very heart, and when the Bible talks about heart, it's the internal you. It's your beliefs. It's your desires. It's your passion. It is that Christ is central in your heart, that he is first and foremost. He says, I want you in your hearts, deep down, not just your words, not just your actions, but your very heart, I want you to, second, I want you to honor Christ as Lord. He doesn't just want you to go at a heart level. He wants you to obey Christ. Christ needs to be your Lord, your master, your ruler. He says it, I follow it. There's so many Christians today, and I got one finger out, three fingers point back, where we know what Christ says to be done, and we choose not to do it. It's not what he says here. In your heart, internally, obey him as Lord, as master, as ruler. And then he says, I want you to do that in holiness. I want you to look different than the world. Because when you start to look different from the world, that leads to the third thing. You are at a heart level. There's obedience, but there's preparation. He says, be prepared. The world's going to attack you. Peter says in another book, why are you surprised at the fire, later in this book, why are you surprised at the fiery trials that come at you? The world is going this way, Christianity goes that way. Don't be surprised when you have a different viewpoint when it comes to sexuality. 
a biblical viewpoint when it comes to sexuality, that's going to be shocking to the world. That shouldn't be shocking to you that they're going to rebel against you. When they say that the life in the womb is not a life, it shouldn't be shocking to you when you stand up and say that is a life in the womb. It shouldn't be shocking to you when they disagree. You say marriage is between a man and a woman. Don't be shocked when the world says that they are attacking you. Why are you surprised? But there's so many Christians today that have become weak in these areas. They have weakened what the gospel says and weakened what the word says because the world is fighting them and they are more like the world than they are like the word. And that is a problem. And so what he says here is this, I need you at a heart level to obey Christ and be prepared for the attacks that come. There's a fourth thing he says. He says, make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of your hope. So he says, I want you to be a person who studies the word. This shouldn't be surprising to you. I'll, I'll tell you, I've been counseling for 30 years, pastoring for years. The, the, wor- the type of questions that the world has are challenging questions, but it always comes down to probably about 20, 15 or 20 different questions. And if you have the answers to those 15 or 20 questions, they all come at a different level, but it's basically the same. Why does God allow suffering? You know, we go down all this list of things. And so if you have an answer for it, if you're prepared for it, guess what? You can make a defense. But there's so many Christians today that don't spend time in the word and they don't know and they get the challenging question and it's like they're stumped. I can guarantee you on the authority of God's word that God has solutions to our problems in life. And they're found in the 66 books and you need to study them. You need to prepare yourself and you need to be willing to make a defense. And you make a defense, defense, the Greek word is apologia and it basically means a prepared legal defense. Now, some wonder if the people are going to court and now they're having to make a defense in court. That's possible. I think it's just every one of us sitting in this room, you have to defend Christianity at some time in in your life. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's with your children. Maybe it's with your boss. Maybe it's with your neighbors. I don't know who it is. Maybe it's with somebody here in this church. Are you able to help people to see that God has solutions to the struggles in life? Make a defense. And reason, logical. See, in our culture today, we attack one another emotionally. We ramp up the emotions, and we do crazy things when we ramp up the emotions, because when the emotions ramp up, logic and reasoning diminishes. But Peter says, it's not about yelling. It's not about screaming. It's not about manipulating. It is that you reason with them logically. To be able to sit there and say, why is a baby here and you're giving a, a baby ceremony and, uh, for somebody, you're giving a party for a person that's having a baby here, but over here they can take their life. How is it a life here and not a life there? It makes no sense. Reason. And as you start to reason with them and you do it with hope, because that's the fifth thing. Heart, obedience, preparation, study, hope. You need to have a hope. He says, the hope that is in you. See, your life and my life needs to look different so that somebody looks and sees something in your life and says, there's something different about that person. And the hope of the resurrection hope that's in you comes out of you. And people can see something different. And have you ever had somebody say to you, what's different about you? 
When the boss just said that, man, I would have yelled and screamed, and you just handled it so well. Man, I just heard about the diagnosis that your spouse got, man. You seem like you're handling this differently. See, there should be something different in you, and that's the hope that Peter's saying, that the hope that is in you will shine out of you. That leads to the sixth thing he says here, graciousness. Heart, obedience, preparation, study, hope, graciousness. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. It's not what we have in our culture today, right? We have people that um, are attacking one another. But this passage talks about gentleness. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is strength under control. It is the sensitivity to God, that God is at work in you. And respect, respect is another word for fear. Fear God more than you fear humanity, and then you could live confidently in the midst of this time. You, you can have such a confidence that you can come into the presence of God, that God lives in you, and that when you go out there, you go out there radically different than the world. You don't have to be obnoxious. You know, there are some, there's some street preaching that is really good. I don't want to minimize street preachers. Uh, there are some street preachers that are, you know, they go out there and they evangelize and they do a really good job. There's one guy I watch online and he is just winsome in his conversations. He asks questions. He's engaging. He has the basically same type of questions. He takes them to the law and then he takes them to the gospel. And he does it with respect and gentleness. And then there are others that you probably have seen there yelling and screaming, you're going to hell, you're that, that. and that kind of stuff. That's not winning anybody. The obnoxiousness doesn't do it. What it does, what does it, is a life that looks different. That life that looks different but is willing to tell the people the truth is huge. Verse 16 says this, he says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, and slandered means that they're saying something evil against you that's not true. So we need to make sure that what they are saying about us is actually not true. Sad to say, for many Christians, what they're saying about us is actually true. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be radically different. He says, when they, you, you need to have a good conscience. The conscience is this internal warning system. And the law that God has given to every human being, whether they have been in a church or whether they've opened a Bible before, the law is there. And it's saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is right, this is right. That law, that internal warning system is there. And what he's saying is that I want you to have a good conscience because your life is living out what Christ asked you to do, a holy life. And so when they slander you and they revile you because of your good behavior in Christ, they may be put to shame. That's huge. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. So, so he begins this section and he says that you as a suffering saint are living in this vicious world. This is how you live. You live in such a way that you keep Christ central. You elevate him in your heart and your life. You are obedient to him. You are prepared for the battle. You are a student of the word. You are a person of hope. And guess what? You display grace. It's pretty cool. So for the suffering saints, living in a vicious world, that's the way you live it. But then he turns the corner and he says, okay, the suffering saints living in a vicious world, 
but why do we do this? And he gives you the why. He tells you about a suffering Savior's victorious work. A suffering Savior's victorious work. And it begins in verse 18. And here's the ground of your hope. This is the ground. He starts with the crucifixion. He goes to Christ's resurrection. He goes to Christ's proclamation. And then he goes to Christ's exaltation. Those four things. The suffering Savior's victorious work, crucifixion, resurrection, proclamation, and then finally exaltation. Let's work through this. Verse 18, four. He begins with four. That is a rationale. He's giving you a reason. He says that you're going through all of this pain. You're going through it, and here's how you do it. Why? Here's the four. For Christ also did what? Suffered. Once for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. First, I want you to see his crucifixion. He says that Christ suffered. I know the trials and the troubles and the pain that you're going through seem immense, and I don't want to in any way minimize them. But the trials and troubles and pain that you and I go through is nothing in comparison to what Christ went through. In fact, when we look at the cross, we look at the cross and we say, that was a painful thing, and that must have been the most incredible pain, but that wasn't even the most incredible pain that Christ went through. Thousands of people had died on a cross. It wasn't the cross that was painful. It was the fact that the Christ took your sin upon himself. What was painful was the fact that the Holy One took sin what was painful is that there was some level of separation between he and the Father. What was painful is that he took your eternity in hell and he bore it on that cross. That was what was painful. And he says, he suffered for you. Animal after animal after animal after animal in the Old Testament had to be sacrificed to cover humanity's sin. But Christ suffered once for sin. This incredible sacrifice was so efficacious that he could die just once. And he died not because of his sin, but because of yours. He substituted himself for you. All we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. We deserve eternal judgment from God. But he came here to become sin for you. He took your punishment that you deserved. He substituted once for sin the righteous one, Christ, for you. And for me, the unrighteous one. And why did he do that? Why did he substitute himself? Jesus paid it all for my sin and your sin. He satisfied God's anger and wrath that I would have had to pay for, for all of eternity. He satisfied that in that moment on the cross. Why? I don't know. I do know this. He paid it all. And all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. And he has washed it. White as snow. See, Christ's suffering accomplished something. He substituted himself to pay for our sin. Our sin paid form. Theologians call that propitiation. 
he appeased the wrath of God. They also talk about expiation. Expiation means that he removed our sin. And if you remember from the Old Testament, you would have one animal that would be slaughtered and their blood would be spilled. And then you had another animal that you would send out of the gate and send them away. And it, it takes on the two elements of what Christ did for you. He paid the penalty for your sin like the one animal that was killed. And then he took your sin away like the animal that was removed. And those two elements, Christ took it all over for you. You are forgiven and you are free in Christ. First thing we see is his substitution. The second thing I see here is his reconciliation. He says, he substituted himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then he said, bring, well, the bring us to God, the reconciliation. What sin does is it separates it started in the Garden of Eden, and it separated Adam from Eve. It separated Adam and Eve from nature. It separated Adam and Eve from God. It is a constant separation. All of the difficulties that you have in relationships today is because of sin. All of the arguments, all of the debates, all the divorces, all the breakdowns, all the things that happen in this world are a byproduct of sin. It separates. What Jesus did is brings us together. He removed the barrier, barrier between people that look differently from one another, speak differently from one another, so that every tribe, every tongue, every group can have a believer in Christ because we are brought together in Christ. He has reconciled us not just to one another, but he's reconciled us more importantly to his father. That we can come boldly into the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I can go boldly into the throne room because God has rescued us. The temple veil, the veil that was separating the holy of holies from the world, torn in two when Christ died on the cross. Why? Because Jesus has removed us. He's removed the separation. The enemy is now a friend. The rejected one is now accepted. The orphan is now adopted. The broken one is now made whole. The one that is far off has now been brought near. That is what Christ did for you. He reconciled you. And the suffering that he went through not only dealt with your righteousness issue, he also dealt with your reconciliation issue. But his crucifixion, which is a grounds of our hope, the second ground of the hope is right here, his resurrection. It says that he, made, he was made alive in the spirit. Now, some question whether that's the Holy Spirit. I think that that's just Jesus' spirit that was made alive here. So this suffering Savior has been victorious over the grave. He's been victorious over sin. He's been victorious over Satan. He's been victorious now over death. And all the things that you and I fear, we fear sin. We fear rejection. We fear health and death. We fear all of these things. We may fear Satan and his demons. The things that you fear, Christ has said, I conquered it. I'm victorious over it all. This great high priest has conquered through the cross. He's conquered through the tomb. He's conquered the air by ascending. He's conquered. He's seated at the Father's right hand. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the majestic one forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That is the king. And that's what Peter wants to give you hope with. Don't let the fearful trials that are happening horizontally take your vision away from that Christ. 
Now, I don't know why Peter didn't just stop there. And to be honest, I probably should just stop there, but I'm not. Because he gives a third ground of hope, proclamation. So, first ground of hope, crucifixion. Second ground of hope, resurrection. Third ground of hope, proclamation. This is where I'm not completely sure what Peter means. So I'm going to just tell you that. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits that are in prison. Proclaim means that he's a herald. He makes an announcement. And he makes an announcement of victory. There was a herald that would come in and run ahead of the troops and come to the city and say, we won, we won, we won. I think that's what Jesus did. I think Jesus went, I won, I won, I won. I think that's what he's doing here. And who are the spirits? Some wonder if they are people who've died before and Jesus has given them a second chance. Well, I can tell you, interpret scripture with scripture. There is no second chance after a person takes their last breath. There's no second chance. So the spirits here, usually when that word spirits is used, it's talking about angels or demons. So I think if you go to verse 20, because they, those angels or demons, formally disobeyed when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while in the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that was eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So I think this is what happens. Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, and somewhere between the rising from the dead and his ascension into heaven, he goes to this abode and he preaches to these demons that are there. And he says, you thought you can beat us. You couldn't. So where did Jesus go? He went and he preached uh, to these spirits. Where were they? These were fallen angels, or what were they? They were fallen angels, evil spirits. Jude chapter 6, we'll get to that in months. That is, um, speaks of these, this abode, this imprisonment of spirits. Where did he go? They're in some in prison. I'm not sure where. And what did he proclaim? I can tell you he didn't proclaim the gospel. He didn't give them a second chance. Demons and angels were not given the gospel. You and I, humanity, were. I think it was a conquering announcement. He says, I won, you lost. He preached judgment upon them and told them that their final condemnation was coming. So what is Peter talking about with this ark? I think what he's talking about with this ark is this. The people in this time were so disobedient. If you read in Genesis, it says that every intention of every action of their heart was evil continually. It was, it was sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. I think the darkness, the evil, the demonic tendencies that were happening in this time were so great. And it actually said that God was grieved that he made the world. And Satan and the demons sought to destroy the world that God has created. And he sought to destroy humanity that God had created. And the rebellion and the resistance and the rejection was ramped up. Jesus goes and says, guess what? I conquered. I finished. I am risen you have lost, you have failed, you have been judged. You tried to destroy all, yet I chose my family, my family of believers. You brought them through judgment, or I brought them through judgment. I kept them safe and secure. Noah, these eight people, his, Noah and his family, were kept safe and secure through the ark. And I think what he's using is the symbol of the ark, which saved those eight people, and the cross, which saves you. 
that as the ark took them through the flood of judgment, the cross takes you through the flood of judgment. I think that's what he's giving you. He's giving you hope that as you look to the cross, that cross can take you to peace. Then he gives baptism. Now, what is he talking about here? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. Once again, he goes back to the resurrection hope. Well, Scripture clearly tells us that you can't be saved by baptism. It's not what he's saying. Clearly not. You interpret Scripture with Scripture. You interpret less clear passages of Scripture with more clear passages of Scripture. You always have to do that. I don't think he's talking about the efficacy of the cleansing of baptism. We're going to celebrate a baptism next week. I think what he's saying is that baptism, similarly, is a symbol of what Christ did for you. Just as the ark took Noah and his family to safety through judgment, the cross takes you to safety through judgment. And baptism is symbolizing what Christ did for you. Because when we have this pool in front of us next week, the person's will go into the water and they will go down into the water they're symbolizing christ what death and then you bring them up out of the water and what are they symbolizing his resurrection and he's saying that baptism which corresponds to this it's not the removal of dirt that's not what's saving you but it's a symbol and it gives you a good conscience that i went into the waters of baptism and i'm symbolizing the resurrection power of christ's life so baptism was a sign of the gospel. You need to remember your salvation. Maybe you need to remember your baptism. I want you to remind yourself of passing through the waters of judgment. I want you to remind yourself that you've passed through the fire. You've passed through the flood. If I had time, I would encourage you to read. I won't do it this morning, but Isaiah 43, a friend of mine had given that to me when I went through a uh, major challenging time in my life, Isaiah 43 talks about the fact that God has taken you through these uh, waters of judgment. He's taken you through the flyer, fire. He's taking you through the flood. And if you can remember that Jesus is your only hope, Christ rose, Christ proclaimed, Christ ascended, Christ enthroned, Christ coming again, and that leads to our last. So there were four grounds of hope. The first ground of hope was his crucifixion. The second ground of hope was his resurrection. The third ground of hope was his proclamation. And the last ground of hope that Peter gives is Christ's exaltation. Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand with the angels and authorities and powers having subjected to him. Jesus Christ is the supreme authority. <laughs> Jesus Christ is power. He's prestige. He's the ultimate power. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Christ suffered unjustly for us. Christ testified in his suffering and he proclaimed in his suffering. Jesus was vindicated through his resurrection. You and I suffer at times unjustly. In that unjust suffering, you could still proclaim gospel truth. And ultimately, you will be vindicated when he takes you to heaven. That's amazing hope. That's an amazing encouragement. That is amazing opportunity. You know, I was thinking of this song before we close, two of them. One by Martin Luther. 
there's this theme in um, A Mighty Fortress. It says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. O Lord, his doom is sure. One little word, Christ, will fell him. Or how about this one? When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of all the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. If you have never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray today that you would remind yourself that every one of us are going to stand in judgment. Those demons that Jesus proclaimed to stood in judgment. Every single one of us will. The only way that you can avert that judgment and hear not guilty is to plead the precious blood of the precious son. His crucifixion, his resurrection, his proclamation, his exaltation can be yours if you trust him today. And for those of you that have trusted him, let that be the grounds that you deal with. As a suffering saint in this vicious world, remind yourself of a suffering savior's victorious work. Radically different. Would you pray with me? So Father, um, Satan can tempt us to despair. And far too often he can tell us of the guilt within. Father, I pray that you'd help us to look upward and see him there, Christ, at your right hand, who made an end to all our sin. Because that sinless Savior died, our sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Father, I in no way want to minimize the pain that some people are going through right now. It's great. It's not greater than your grace, and it's not greater than eternity. Father, I pray that we would be able to sing that it is well. It is well with our soul. Though we go through trials and troubles and difficulties, it is well because we keep the resurrected Christ in our eyes and our visions. Help us to reflect him, honor him, lift him up in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
with my soul. Heavenly Father, we proclaim that this morning, that it is well with our souls. God, thank you that the hope we have is found only in Jesus, and that that hope was accomplished with something that we could never do for ourselves, Father, but only you were able to devise a plan that we would send your own son to the cross to bring us into relationship with you. Father, let that hope reside in our hearts this week, Father, that when these attacks that we receive, whether it be on a, a human level, a, a spiritual level, God, we have a hope in you that is stronger than anything that could come against us. So God, we just say that it is well this morning and just ask that you would uh, bless us as we go and allow these things to just reign in our hearts, Father, this week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.